Good Stuff Farmer to Farmer podcast episode 121, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Melanie and Kevin Cunningham own and operate Shake Fork Community Farm in Humboldt County, California, where they raise five acres of vegetables and a diverse array of livestock, including broilers, egg layers, pigs, and sheep. And they do it with oxen, as well as with four-wheeled and two-wheeled tractors. Since their start in 2008, the farm has evolved from an emphasis on small grains to a focus on vegetables and livestock, which they sell through their 120-member CSA and three farmers markets. We take a deep dive into how they've integrated the oxen into their operation, including the why behind it and how they use draft power in ways and places where they feel tractor power and human power aren't necessarily the best choices. Kevin and Melanie also dig into how they manage the complexity of their operation, including their introduction to holistic management and how they've used that to support their decision making and to get on the same page from a relationship standpoint, as well as to help them do the caliber of work that they want to be doing. We discuss how they schedule multiple labor-intensive enterprises and how they've divided responsibilities and how they coordinate between the different parts of the operation. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by Coolbot by Store It Cold. You can build an affordable walk in cooler powered by a Coolbot and a window air conditioning unit. Save up to 83% on upfront costs and up to 42% on monthly electrical bills compared to conventional cooling systems. Melanie and Kevin Cunningham, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hi, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for uh, being here. So I'd like to start off today by having you guys tell us a little bit about Shake Fork Community Farm. Um, how many acres are you farming and, and where are you guys selling it and where you guys are located and, and what makes you guys so cool? Well, our farm is uh, 85 acres in total. Um, we're in Humboldt County in the far north coast of California in a little town car called Carlotta. We're on the Van Dusen River floodplain. So uh, the river actually flows through our property and about half of our acreage is river bar, meadow, and we own to the far side of the river. So we've got like five acres of mixed timber on the other side. So farming wise, we have, let's see, about eight acres in cultivation, um, five in veggies and another couple in um, mixed in small grains and hay crops. And then... The rest is all pasture. We started in 2008 as we were farming grains, actually small grains on leased ground in, in a nearby town. And when we started looking for property, um, we saw this place and it just seemed like a dream come true. It's just, it's flat, it's wide open. Um, it just seemed like a perfect place to grow our grains. And as we started tilling ground here, every single time, uh, Kevin put a plow on the ground. We hit a massive buried redwood tree or huge log from a previous flood event. <laughs> and we also just soon realized that there's just a lot of being on the floodplain. There's just old creek pathways and old river channels. And just so much of our ground is not suitable for tillage. It's, um, it's just too rocky, too sandy, too variable. So we have basically isolated the most productive five to eight acres. And from the first years, we've started turning a lot of the ground we initially cultivated back into pasture. 
And then we've been growing the pasture side of our operation ever since. We currently have a 120-member vegetable CSA. And in addition, we're selling to three farmers markets. One of them is all year round. And one starts in May, goes through Thanksgiving. The other is June through October. We do very little wholesale. Um, we do some on-farm sales. And that's about it. So your major market is is there in Eureka, California, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, Eureka is the biggest city um, in our county. But um, uh, I'd say for our farm, we have pretty even distribution of sales throughout the county. Um, everything we grow is sold within probably 50 miles of our farm. But we have a customer base in Arcata, Eureka, in Southern Humboldt, which is a very rural part of the county. We go all over the place. And where you guys are located, when I think about Humboldt County there in Northern California, I think fog. <laughs> are you guys down in the fog or are you guys up out of that a little ways because you're inland? We are um, pretty much right outside of the fog belt. Um, you know, the farm is probably 16 miles as the crow flies from the ocean. Um, and our nearest town, larger town, Fortuna, is usually in the fog um, and it's more coastal and we're kind of just outside of it. I mean, there's a lot of areas in the county that do get warmer than us. Um, and then there's, we're kind of in between, um, you know, we, we can sometimes pull off tomatoes outside, but oftentimes we do our tomatoes in the greenhouse. We can't grow good melons or anything like that. We don't have that kind of heat, but we're not, super fog coastal where we're at here. We're just, just outside of the fog belt. One of my former guests, Janet Charnecki contacted me and said that I had to interview you guys cause you're awesome. And the thing that she said that, well, it's not the only thing she said that made you awesome, but, but she said that one of the things that made you guys awesome and very interesting is that you're farming with oxen. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we might be the only uh, production oriented farm on the West coast that has that claim to fame. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a bit of a convoluted story. It's not um, something we certainly ever intended to do. I've traveled quite a bit and woofed on lots of farms overseas where there were oxen involved, and I can't say that I ever, ever imagined that I would be farming someday with oxen. But but we're doing it. It is happening here at Shake Fork. Okay, so I want to start with the basics. What is an ox? So I like to think about it. Basically, an ox is more like a job title than a breed of animal. And so pretty much any bovine can be trained to be an ox. Here in North America, the, the kind of general standard is a castrated male bovine that's trained to work and is mature. Um, and cattle don't mature until four to five years of age. So before four to five, they're called working steers. And then after four to five, you know, physical maturity, then they can be termed an oxen. All of our oxen are essentially dairy breeds, you know, dairy drop calves that we get from local dairies. And when you say all of your oxen, how many oxen do you have? Currently, we have a team of six-year-old Jersey Holstein crosses that we got from a dairy farm up in uh, Del Norte County, Crescent City, um, Alexander Eco Farm. And they are our big team. I have a team of milking shorthorn steers that are about three years old and they're kind of coming up to maturity and training. And I got those from friends out in Shasta County. Then I have a 
uh, four brand new calves that we're feeding just this year. So they're about three months old and they're uh, Fleck V crosses, kind of a mixed breed. Fleck V being a German breed. And they also came from the uh, Alexander Eco Dairy up in Crescent City. So we have teams in progress, but most of our, our farm work actually gets done with the, the oldest team. That's kind of the, the most well-trained and the largest and most capable actually to do farm work. Why oxen? I mean, Melanie, you mentioned that, that you guys are, as far as you're aware, the only farm on the West Coast using oxen on a working farm. So, okay, look, farming is hard enough as it is. Why make it harder on yourselves? <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm going to let Kevin take that one. <laughs> um, nah. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, well, first off, I'd like to say that, you know, we are a mixed power farm. Um, so we have our oxen teams. Um, we also use our tractor. We have we use a BCS rototiller. Um, we use a good amount of human power. Um, and our main thing is what we're finding is that we're using the appropriate power source for the job that needs to be done. As far as like why we got into oxen or why I personally got into oxen, because it's kind of my pet project. I dragged Melanie along with <laughs> me on the oxen thing. I've always had an interest in draft power. I was trained kind of straight ahead, tractor-based vegetable farming. I had a great mentor and um, learned a lot doing that. And kind of always enjoyed the romantic notion of farming with horses or anything along those lines. And but I never got a chance to work on a horse powered farm or do any draft training. And when we moved here to the farm in Carlotta, you know, all of a sudden we had space and, you know, I could raise <laughs> livestock. And that was kind of a, a newer thing for what we were kind of doing as a farm. And, you know, I made the decision to get into oxen because it was easier and it cost less money. You know, at the time that I got my first team six years ago, dairy drop bull calves were, you know, 20 to $30 a piece. Uh, the price of beef was really low at the time, so they didn't have much value. And um, we actually got four calves, our first round of calves, and we, we ended up trading our dressed out pastured broiler hens for the oxen because they were run about 20 to $30 a, a chicken. And so I literally traded four chickens for four calves and then over the course of time, bottle fed them and trained them up and turned them into the oxen. So it was a really cheap way to get involved with draft. And if it didn't work out, we would raise them as steers and they would be beef. So it was kind of a, a thing that, you know, I was interested in. And then, you know, it was a good, easy way to get started in, you know, draft animal power. But then when I got into it, I realized I really love cattle and I love the kind of bovine energy. And I wanted to do more of that. And so they taught me a lot. I got to kind of, as a teamster, develop and mature over the course of the six years and teach myself since I didn't have an in-person mentor to teach me anything about farming with draft power. And then we kind of just started adapting them into the fitting them into the farm systems. And what we find is that they do 
some things really well and really appropriately where a tractor, at least to the tractor that we have, is too big, too heavy, too noisy. You know, there's all kinds of ways that the, the oxen can fit in that are appropriate for the, the farming systems that we've developed. I want to add that when we started Shake Fork, we were farming about 15 acres of small grains. Our tractor is oversized for the, the garden farming that we're doing right now. It's, we're, not, we're not appropriately tooled up for the garden and the five acres of veggies that we're doing. And it would be a, a pretty sizable investment of finances to get tooled up. So kind of the in-between, we, we didn't have the financial means to just go buy a new tractor and tiller and all that stuff. So we've been working with the big old Massey that we have at the same time, just sort of playing around with raising these calves and starting their training. And just along the way, there were so many successes it just kept blowing our minds that it just kept working. So we've kept at it. And then that combined with Kevin's really deep passion for working with these animals, because um, it's definitely an investment of labor, of our labor that, you know, is unpaid to a certain extent. But it's just it feeds your soul. So it feeds mm-hmm. Kevin's soul. So it works. So when you talk about outstanding successes that you had during the early years of working with the oxen, what kinds of things are you talking about? Sometimes they're mind blowing. Sometimes they just blow my mind. I remember the very first time I, I hitched my my little young team. They were in this very small training yoke and they're pretty much calves. And I slit hitched them to this little sled and I put a rock on it, you know, a pretty heavy rock. And I told them to step up and they they just started pulling really hard. And it was, you know, because it's a it's a natural response. It's a oppositional resistance. So when they feel a load behind them, they, instead of, you know, letting into that, that, that resistance, they push into it. And that's how draft works is when they feel load behind them, the natural inclination is to continue to push into that load and it worked and it, you know, they pulled this rock and I was just blown away that this was actually working, (laughs) you know? Um, And some of the other things that we've done that have been pretty mind blowing for me is the amount of logging that we've been able to do with them. We live right on the river and during the winter time, we get a good number of uh, winter storms that will raise the level of our river. And, you know, we're in timber country. And so we get logs that will wash down the river all winter long and then the water will recede. And then I take the oxen out and I can go and, you know, salvage log those logs off the river. At this point, we're pulling some good sized timber off the river and it's just basically you know, what would normally get washed down into the ocean. And we just recently invested in a uh, portable sawmill for milling that lumber up. And we're now getting to actually use that lumber for farm projects. To me, that's pretty mind blowing. And then I also remember the first time we cultivated. When we started the vegetable garden, we were doing zero tractor cultivation. That's not entirely true, but, you know, I was I had some basic shanks I could cultivate and hill potatoes to a certain extent and do the winter squash rows, but I couldn't like do any good tractor cultivation the way my tractor is set up. So it was all done by hand. So we were out there using wheel hose, using hula hose, doing all of the cultivation by, by hand. When we got set up with um, a tool system for the oxen in the garden, and we're able to mechanically cultivate single two rows, you know, do our pathways cultivate over our drip tape, which was pretty mind blowing because even for hula hoeing, we pulled all of our drip tape off and then we were able to just 
cultivate right around the drip tape without, you know, harming the drip tape. That's pretty mind blowing. So those are kind of the things that keep me going and, and keep me interested in kind of innovating with the incorporation of, of draft into, you know, appropriate farm systems. I'd like to add one thing too. this winter. So we have a, a pretty flashy creek that causes a good amount of flooding every winter. And we have a, a layer coop that holds 300 hens on skids. And it was in a field just as the storm was turning and the water was starting to rise, you know, just maybe six inches of water kind of creeping closer to where the chickens were. And until this winter, we've always pulled that coop with the tractor because it's, it's pretty sizable. But it was so wet this winter, we got double our normal rainfall, at least, that getting out in, um, we have a two-wheel drive tractor also, so getting out into the wet fields was becoming problematic. So in this particular instance, we yoked up the team, Kevin got them out there, and they were able to pull that coop out of the rising floodwater when a, our tractor would not have been able to do it. Yeah, our tractor would have been sunk in the mud. And with the lighter footprint of the oxen and then you know the fact that we're not doing the compaction on the ground, uh, we now pull that layer coop twice a week with the oxen. And I can say that I've noticed that, you know, whenever I used to drive out on the field at certain times of the year, you'd see my tire tracks going out to the pasture. You know, when I walk the oxen out and I pull that coop, you know, you won't right. see where I've been. My tractor's probably 12,000 pounds. The team is, you know, about 2,000 a piece. So, and the, the, the level of compaction that the hoof action does is much less than tire compaction. And it's noticeable um, out in the fields. So how big are the oxen? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you just you just threw out a weight there. But what does that translate to in terms of like the size of the animal when you're standing next to it? Uh, my big team are Jersey Holstein crosses. You know, Jerseys are fairly small cattle. Holsteins are actually rather large animals. Um, anybody who's been next to a, a Holstein dairy cow knows that they're big animals. So they're kind of mediums. The the, the whole Jersey moderates them. You know, they're, they're they are probably around a ton a piece um, right now. But yeah, they're they're I'm six one. You know, they're up to about my shoulder on their on their shoulder. You know, the tops of their heads are over my head. They certainly are big animals. When people see them, they say, wow, that's that's a big animal. <laughs> they're impressive. Yeah, they can be they can be impressive, you know, and, and there's other breeds of oxen that certainly get bigger. You know, a, a full, uh, you know, purebred Holstein would be much larger. A brown Swiss would be definitely a sizable ox. Chianinas are, are massive oxen, but, you know, I think for, for farm work, kind of a medium to medium large breed or crossbreed is what we're kind of going for. But, you know, they, they, they are bigger than your average cow, bigger than your average steer. Um, and then the, the, the ox, one of the reasons you castrate is the ox will be larger than the bull of the same breed. Something about testosterone limits growth at a certain point. So when you castrate, you you make the, the animal more mellow, but you also get a larger animal, which when you're looking at, you know, muscle power, that's a benefit. So they, they're they're sizable, sizable animals for sure. And how much power when you talk about muscle power, how much power does that translate into? I mean, I, I realize that that like saying, you know, Trying to compare horsepower between an ox and a tractor is, is a little bit, I don't think that's going to work, right? But <laughs> like how much pulling power do you have with an ox? 
you know, probably the best examples are the logging that I do. And the logging is certainly the 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 upper end of their their weight limit. And I use that actually as kind of a like a oxen crossfit to kind of get them in shape for the farming season, um, mainly because most of the garden work I do with them, I actually don't want them pulling their maximum. Um, they'll pull faster, the heavier the load. And, you know, most uh, most garden work should be done at a walk. So it should be easy for them. I want them when they're in the garden for it to be really a mellow pull. And that goes for our bed shapers and our chisel plow that we go through our beds, cultivation, bed raking, uh, cultivating our pathways, all of that should be really easy work. The logging is where we we kind of extend that capacity, you know, and I'm definitely pulling logs that are, you know, two foot in diameter, 16 feet long, fresh from the water. So they're full of, you know, moisture, you know, they could be five, 6,000 pounds. It's a, it's a substantial pull on gravel bar, you know, and that's the other thing is you, you have friction coefficient. So you know, it's different when I'm pulling a very heavy load on wheels versus pulling a very large log with a lot of surface area over gravel bar. And I'm pulling that same log, say, on permanent pasture. It has different amount of draft, but it they can pull a sizable amount and it's they should be able to at least pull their weight. You know, and that's kind of that saying of, you know, pull your weight. Well, they should be at least able to pull their four thousand combined pounds. You know, on the East Coast where they do a lot of ox pulls, you know, those oxen, they'll pull up into the 10,000 pound range. You know, that's not uncommon for a big, you know, free for all team. You know, they pull at six feet. So that's a difference. You know, I want to be able to pull something around in, in a circle all day, <laughs> you know, which is a different, different thing, you know, when you're looking at the amount of power that they can produce. Right. Endurance athletes are different than power lifters. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really helpful to think of them as athletes because a lot of the same concepts transfer quite readily, you know, and you use your, your logging, you use your kind of your, your strength training to build your muscle mass. And then, you know, and I'll even, and then I'll do that. And then I'll kind of do a, I'll do a long and low day where I'm just doing something lighter, but long, I'm walking miles, you know, and then I'll, I'll do some, some intense, high intensity work. And that not only keeps them mentally flexible, but it also builds their physical stamina and their capacity to work. And so that's something that I've always wondered about with regards to draft animals, because I've always had I've always had mixed feelings about draft animals. I've always been kind of fascinated by them. But at the same time, they're really big and and it kind of scares me (laughs) when you're talking about that. I mean, having to having to think about the different types of exercise, if you will, on different days, you know, a, a hard pulling day followed by a long and slow day. That seems like a complication to farming that is, I mean, it's already complicated. How do you guys manage that? Well, I think, you know, um, I do most of my, my kind of training and work during the wintertime, you know, and so we do have a mild climate here in California and we do a uh, year round market up in Arcata, but it does get to be more mellow during the, during the winter time. And that's really when I focus in on doing my logging and making those kind of physical gains so that by springtime, you know, I'm able to focus 
more on the priorities of the farming and the garden that are I need to focus, you know, and I have to, I have to get crops in. And so and that's kind of a traditional pattern. You know, you spend all winter doing your logging or, you know, if you're in the right climate, you could do your maple harvesting. And then during the springtime, you're plowing summertime, you're cutting hay in the fall time, you're, you know, harvesting. And so you have this kind of seasonal flow to the work and it still holds true. I mean, we do most of my, my, when I'm training my young teams, most of that is during the winter time. I do most of my workout and I try to get them up to that physical level, you know, during the winter time so that, you know, when it comes time to do the work in the spring, they're physically fit and I can kind of just go to them. And I just know that they're ready. You know, if I was to, you know, try to, you know, let them out to pasture all winter long and then jump straight into plowing or bed shaping or any of the more physical work in the spring, it would be a problem. You know, so you gotta, you gotta think about the timing of it. And I'd have to say that the, you know, of the draft farmers that I know, the, the reason you do it is because you love it. And that kind of has to be a part of it. Otherwise, if it's if it becomes a burden, it's just going to be easier to fire up the tractor and go. I love working with the oxen and that feeds a part of me that I really enjoy. You know, we get the we get the the draft power in the garden. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is it kind of fits into one of our larger um, farm goals of on farm fertility. And so we know that, you know, the work that we do in the off season or, you know, while they're not working is, you know, maintaining the fertility aspects of the farm. And so it has this intangible benefit in that respect. And so we're, we're kind of using them in a lot of different ways. And it just kind of works for, for me and for my lifestyle and, you know, for the size farm that we are at, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, Melanie, do you work with the oxen? You know, I don't that much. I mean... Because we are, we do do a lot of livestock, we have over the years divided the labor a little bit. So I am, I manage the the veggie side of our operation and the greenhouses and some of the poultry. And then Kevin and I coordinate on um, bed prep and cultivation. We know, I, I let him know, hey, the onions really need cultivating this week. He pulls the oxen out, gets it ready works with a crew member to get that done. I have been, I don't, let's see, I haven't, I can lead them around. They're very tame. I'm not frightened of them by any means. And I have been on the back end of the equipment. I guess I just feel that I have so many things on my plate that, and it might be better for our marriage if we don't try to do everything together. (laughs) And our crew, to be honest, is I think we're attracting certain people who are also interested in working with the oxen and, and draft power. And so it's a good opportunity for a crew member or apprentice to, to work more closely in, in that regard. So you just said something really interesting, Melanie. You said you've worked on the back end of the oxen. I've always imagined with, with draft animals, you've just got one person. Is it is it a two-person operation, a front end and a back end? Most tasks are. Kevin can do harrowing, and um, he's got a couple small discs that he can do solo where he's leading the team and they're just pulling. But we have this piece of equipment. It's called an Annie's All-in-One. It's fabricated in Mendocino County by a, a an artist down there who's really interested in draft. And a few years back, I guess maybe 2014, we ran a fund Humboldt campaign. It's sort of like 
our local Kickstarter Kickstarter organization, and we raised close to $5,000 from our community to purchase this thing. And it's basically, it's this sort of, Kevin would probably be better describing it, but it requires one person, the team stirs at the head with working the oxen. Somebody else is sort of controlling the back end of the of the piece of equipment with their hands. Yeah, it's a it's a multi tool carrier. So it's I mean, it looks pretty simple. It's basically a set of handles and guide wheels. And then we can put on bed shapers and cultivators and chisel plows and furrowers and cultivators and all kinds of different things on the back of it. Um, But it does. And that is what's different probably about oxen as opposed to um, a lot of horse farm farming equipment is that because they're essentially voice and body position controlled, I don't actually have any physical reins or anything in control with the oxen. I'm leading them with my voice commands and leading them around. So that requires one person at the head and one person at the back. Now it can be thought of as a disadvantage to a you know, like a a horse drawn cultivator, you know, you can have one farmer go out and cultivate. The advantages of it are that we can cultivate a a much denser planting. So we can cultivate two rows per bed as opposed to a single row, which most horse drawn cultivators are, are set up for single rows. The other advantage is that we get to include our crew and we have apprentices on the farm and they get to work with me on the back end where they're they're actually using the implement themselves. Um, and then, you know, for some of our advanced apprentices, they'll actually lead the oxen and I get to be behind and working the the handle handles of the equipment. And the Annie's all in one is it's an amazing piece of equipment, very well made. And uh, yeah, we should give a plug out for Annie because she did a great job designing and building it. It's based on a French model called a um, Cassine. Cassine, I'm, I'm not certain on the pronunciation, but it was uh, developed in France and it was actually exported to a lot of third world countries as far as um, for working small draft animals, mules, donkeys, uh, oxen, you know, and it, it works great in our, in our particular situation. It's a very appropriate tool for working in our garden. So, Melanie, can you tell us a little bit more about your vegetable production and and how that all works and where the oxen fit in and versus where you guys are doing handwork instead? Our vegetable production. um, Well, the CSA CSA is the heart of our vegetable production. So we're really I'm designing my production plan and our succession planting around the CSA, which means, you know, growing a whole variety of stuff. Some of it is more challenging to grow in our area. Um, in our climate than other crops, but we try to keep a balanced box each week. And then there's a few crops, I guess, that we grow more extensively, like we do a good amount of onions, a good amount of potatoes. Storage crops were always sort of our special interest, I guess. Um, So we, you know, we like to go into the winter with a barn full of stuff. Our system has really been in flux over the last few years because the oxen weren't large enough to do the work Um, that they're doing now until about, let's see, 2015, I think was the first year that we went from wide four row beds, tractor built beds to two row oxen built beds. For example, right now we're prepping like an eighth of an acre for our next brassica planting, our second round. And Kevin was out there yesterday with the tractor hauling manure. Uh, We have a little John Deere manure spreader 
And then he dust that in. Tomorrow, after this rain, we'll get the oxen out. And our apprentice, Daniel Perez, will be working with Kevin on the all-in-one. They will shape beds. And then they'll, once the beds are shaped, they'll do a sort of a kind of a back and forth of shaping, raking them out, reshaping, raking them out until the beds are, are formed adequately and they're smooth and they look good. And the final step, which is really nice for me, is they'll run through and they'll mark our rows for planting. They'll make these little furrows. And so that kind of designates what we, where we do our planting. Um, before, years ago, I just used to mark those all by hand. So there was a lot of uh, variability in that. And it was something I had to do because most people can't make straight lines. So the lines are all marked. And we, when it goes to planting day, we'll just stretch out the drip tape, usually one row per furrow. And then most of our crops were planting using the drip tape as a spacing mechanism. So on an 8 or 16 or a 24-inch spacing. And then it's all set up. Because we have that those furrows pulled and they're the same spacing as our, we can work the cultivator around that. When we, when we need to cultivate, um, everything's lined up to just sort of sweep through and do some of the initial cultivation with the oxen. Now we still have to get in at some point usually and hula ho in between a little bit just to clean it up. But I feel that since we've been able to do the oxen cultivation, which started, I think, might have been even last year. Maybe 2015 was our first success with that. We'd started in it on 2015, but last year was the first real year where we were cultivating. A yeah, lot of I mean, the onions are a really good example because typically onions, I'd say we weed five times in a season to get a good sense of big crop that we do because we do the winter market. So we like our storage onions. And I'd say now we probably will hand weed one, I mean, you know, hula ho once, possibly twice. And all the, the rest of the cultivation will be done mechanically with the oxen. They can sweep through a half acre field in a half an hour. Wow. That's really nice. Yeah. That's, and, that's a lot of ground that you can cover in a hurry. Mm-hmm. It's helping. Yeah. I mean, that, that when the first last year was the first year where we were, we were cultivating, you know, regularly. And, you know, the first time we did it and it worked really well, it was like, bells were going off in my head because the amazing uh, time efficiency, knowing that it took me 15 minutes that saved hours and hours of hand labor. It was pretty amazing, you know, when it, when it, when it did work and, um, and onions are a great example because they don't shade very well. You know, they've got their, there's the perennially weedy crop, right. <laughs> you know, um, so they, they, you know, we do a lot of the, the cultivation with that, you know, our brassicas were able to cultivate, you know, we can do, um, a single row cultivation on all the squash and the, potatoes and hilling on the potatoes. It's just, it's, it, mm-hmm. it works great for the scale of garden that we're growing. It buys us time so we can put more attention into the fussier stuff too. So, you know, we're not really, we're doing, yeah, we can still get in there and be really clean with our root crops and our, some of the stuff that's you're not able to cultivate with the oxen, like the peas that are all trellised. Mm-hmm. Now, how many CSA members do you have? Well, last year we max uh, was our largest year at 120 families. Some of those are um, half shares. So we offer two different size shares. Um, so probably if we counted it all as a full share, it would probably be about 80 shares. 
but family-wise, it's about 120 families. And that's that's that was comfortable for us, and that's where we want to stay. We won't be since the beginning. We've grown every year, and I think we've kind of found our sweet spot at 120 families. And then the three farmers markets. I mean, relative to the CSA, is are you guys doing more vegetables to farmers market, less vegetables to farmers market? We're still doing more to farmers market. I mean, our goal we would love. We would love to be primarily a CSA farm. And um, I think what it would take to get there is to have our CSA members buying more of their full diet from us. But because we're all, we also have the eggs and the chicken and the lamb, um, farmers markets constitute about 60% of our gross sales. So you said that it's, it's awfully cool there in the summertime. Uh, are you doing a lot of hoop house production? Well, I mean... Like a hot day for us is 80. Um, we do our peppers and eggplants outside um, in little caterpillar tunnels. The tomatoes we've done and we do in a hoop house now. We actually, we haven't been. We have only two hoop houses, one's for propagation, one's for the tomatoes. They're just small little 20 by 48 feet structures. Um, this winter, I applied for the NRCS funding to get a couple more high tunnels. So in the next month, we're putting in a 30 by 96 foot semi-gabled structure, and then we'll be hopefully putting in another one by the end of this year. I wish we had done it years ago, but um, better late than never. <laughs> I'm excited about it. I think it's going to revolutionize uh, our capacity. I mean, we're just not meeting market demand in the winter. We always go home with empty boxes, and one of the things that we've discovered over the years and it's just taken time to address is just that problem of year round cash flow. You know, when you have a big mortgage and you have, we kind of have some full time staff now and um, just all the expenses that come with owning property, we are setting ourselves up to kind of spread out the labor a little bit, but also just provide real income, a real income stream over the winter. We, I guess we had that in the beginning a little bit with our grain CSA because that would start in the fall with the grain harvest. So we'd have this big influx of cash at that time. But when we um, dropped the grain CSA, um, you know, almost four or five years ago now, I think it was 2014 was the last year, we kind of lost that big chunk of money in the fall that would carry us through. It's just taken some time to build the infrastructure that we know we need because it's costly. <laughs> So we're super excited about these high tunnels and I'm going to have a lot of fun with them this winter and next spring. I think that's a good spot for us to stop, take a break, get a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Melanie and Kevin Cunningham from Shake Fork Community Farm in Carlotta, California. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it, and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I've used other tillers and other mowers, and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Perennial support is also provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. 
What if you didn't have to worry about weak transplants and poor germination due to less than great potting soil? Or worry about getting finished compost for your homemade blend? Or making sure your employees remember to add the fertilizer charge? What if you could grow plants up until the roots filled the container without having to worry about supplying extra fertility? What if your potting soil supplier dealt directly with growers without going through a distributor so that they know who gets every batch of potting soil and how they're using it? What if your potting soil had your back consistently year after year? That's what Vermont Compost Potting Soil can bring to you. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com and we're back with Melanie and Kevin Cunningham from Shake Fork Community Farm in Carlotta, California. So before we went on break, we were talking about some decisions that you had made about uh, dropping the small grain CSA that you were doing several years ago. Why did you drop that? Why did you let that go? Oh, gosh, there are so, so many reasons. I'd say it's a combination of, first of all, just uh responding to the condition to to what our farm is and when we you know we were fairly new farmers when we started farming um well we were new farmers when we started farming as shake fork and then when we moved to carlotta we were only in our second year and we we learned a lot just once we started opening up ground here and realized that so much of the ground is just more suited to a permanent pasture agriculture and so we didn't want to force <laughs> force our ideas of how we wanted to farm on the land. And so we changed our our ideas of what to produce in response to that. Um, that's probably the main thing. I mean, the other is probably a financial, yeah, financial. A financial question. I mean, we were dry farming our grains. Um, the basic numbers are an acre of dry farmed organic grains here in Humboldt our top yields were about a ton per acre. And we were fetching actually a fairly high price through our CSA of about $4.50 on average per pound. That still only works out to about $9,000 an acre. Now, there's, you know, there's not as much labor, you could argue, as producing vegetables, but to say that there's no labor involved in producing grains is total misconception. I mean, there was still a ton of tractor work, the harvest, all the processing, seed cleaning, milling, packaging, um, storage. I mean, there was there was still a, a, a lot of stuff to figure out. And at 9,000 an acre, it just wasn't the best use of our of our best ground. Uh, it wasn't enough to make the farm work. You know, once we started realizing we have this mortgage, we have property taxes, we have all these fixed expenses that come with property ownership. And we started figuring all that out and just realizing this isn't going to cut it. We need to, we need to do more. Um, we need to earn more per acre on our land. And just to keep things running. And so now are you guys running a profitable farm at this point? Yeah, we are. I mean, we're not raking in tons of money. Like, <laughs> like we hear stories of some farms doing, but um, I'd say as of year three, uh, we became profitable. We're making a very modest income for ourselves, but we are um, constantly reinvesting and continuing to build infrastructure for um, both the on-farm apprentices that live here, um, for the animals. I mean, pretty much most of our profit just goes back into the farm. Now, do you guys have kids? We have one uh, three and a half year old that was 
Yeah. One one son. Clyde. Mr. Clyde. Farmer Clyde. <laughs> All right. I like it. That's a good farm name. I like mm-hmm. that. <laughs> so as you guys were turning away from the small grains and into more of a of a permanent pasture style agriculture, tell me about that process and 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 what you guys are raising on that side of the operation now. That side of the operation continues to evolve when we when we first moved to this property, we had goats and currently there is not a goat on the farm. We currently have the most animals on our farm that we have ever had. Um, we do about 1,500 to 1,800 broilers a year, um, harvesting between April and November. Uh, we have 300 laying hens and we'll do about 60 Thanksgiving turkeys. We have a motley crew of cattle, um, three dairy cows, their calves. Dexter beef herd, um, the oxen. So that constitutes about 20 animals. And we have a a 50 head flock of sheep, if you include this year's lambs. Um, Four pigs just for, you know, meat production for us. And a whole, a little flock of wild turkeys and randomly appearing uh, herd of elk that come through the farm at times. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of different kinds of livestock. That's a, I mean, that must create a serious management burden for you guys. You know, I won't argue with that, actually. <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. A few years ago, we were really um, feeling the stress of it all. And I mean, maybe it was probably also having a, a baby and we really felt that um, decision making burnout just god there's so many ways we can jump we want to do this and that and that what do we do first we need this over here to make that more efficient we need this over here to make that more efficient where do we put our money and um that's you know we were kind of in this sort of crisis mode where it seemed like we were always putting out a fire something was happening and i think that's when kevin sort of discovered holistic management and we brought that into our lives and that has helped good amount and just uh, focusing us and creating a context from which to make decisions um, and providing a little more, um, yeah, just structure to the management. So tell me about that because holistic management is, is one of my fascinations. I've, I, I had the good fortune to meet Alan Savory actually back in 1990 when I was at Deep Springs college and, and, and to be working off and on with people who've been involved in that, I want to say movement, but that way of managing over the years. And I mean, tell me about discovering that and then, and how you guys brought that into your farm operation. Yeah. It, it, it you know, one of our workers slash friend um, gave us a copy, um, the original copy of, of, uh, of Alan Savory's book. Um, and uh, that winter I sat down and I read it. And I, I did a serious study of it because, you know, if you've seen the, uh, the you know, the first edition, it's not easy reading. And um, it kind of it, it made a lot of sense to me um, that that was something that we wanted to incorporate into the farm. Um, and we, we worked with that kind of on our own. And then um, we start discovered and started um, working with the uh, savory hub here in um, Northern California through the, the, the newly formed savory Institute. 
um, the, the Jefferson hub. And we started taking some of their, 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 their courses, um, and getting set up with a grazing plan and, you know, a holistic context and, and all of the things that we needed to kind of, you know, manage the complexity, um, that was this, this craziness that we, we created when we started this farm. Mm-hmm. What about the holistic management helped you to manage the craziness and the complexity? I think uh, for us, it provides a structure that a structure and a jargon that we both um, can get behind. I mean, I it kind of gives an umbrella to all the different ideas and inspirations and tools we use on the farm. And um, that's been really helpful for us. Like, I love QuickBooks. I love looking at the numbers. But when I throw some of those spreadsheets Kevin's way, it it's it's not really his thing and it can kind of just be aggravating for us to discuss but when we look at it under the umbrella of the holistic context and we talk about it in that framework it seems to really work because we're looking at we're valuing all the different parts of our farm not just for what um what they're bringing in in terms of gross sales but also how they're building soil and how how they're increasing the just the ecological value of our property and um, contributing to our, our happiness and the fullness of the farm and our, and our food security here at the farm. So when you start to look at all the different aspects in that context and how they relate, it's been, it's enabled Kevin and I to talk more, um, more comfortably together about the different parts of the farm that we manage. And so how did you guys go about learning that language you mentioned that you got in contact with the the folks at the at the savory hub but i mean i okay i've read the book and i've i've actually read the book multiple times um but that makes me relatively weird um and so kevin it makes you relatively weird that you've read that book because it's a big thunker of a book and and so what i mean did you guys go through a process or or Kevin, mm-hmm. did you just hand the book to Melanie and we're like, here, this is going to solve the farm. <laughs> kind of, kind of that actually. And I mean, yeah, we might be weird, but gosh, that book is so exciting to me. It's just, it's dense, but it just, it almost reads like a novel. It's just, it's thrilling. I think we, I think we just really got to a low point where we were totally overwhelmed by, you know, well, one thing is that we both came into this farming because probably driven by a desire to to kind of have an agrarian land-based lifestyle and to do things ourselves and to get connected with production. And we, we're doers. We like to do things. We don't, we're not trained managers at all. So in the beginning, it just kind of worked out. We had really amazing people that worked with us. We all worked our butts off and it worked. But as the farm got bigger, more dynamic, more complicated, um, we were really struggling as managers some of those years. And um, I think we encountered holistic management just when we needed some kind of guidance, some kind of mentorship. And it's, it just kind of worked for us. I mean, we've looked to other communities, um, you know, like the biodynamic community or other frameworks to kind of provide some of that, um, support, I guess, and decision-making and, and holistic management is just what 
we've jived with most in our, you know, in our, in our hearts. I think it's fair to say that holistic management deals very directly with the issues of how to manage livestock in a grazing environment. I mean, you know, that's, that's where, that's where the, the practices and, and the, the, I, I'm going to say discoveries that Alan Savory mm-hmm. made were founded. Are there ways that you've used those tools and, and that decision-making process in your vegetable side of your operation? I, I think the, the, the main aspect is, is that it, it looks, you know, when we're looking at it as a, as a whole, you know, the, I think it's been the larger decisions around, you know, do we keep gardening? Do we, you know, do, do what crop, you know, do we grow crops? Do we focus on the animals? And, you know, having our, our context has allowed us to continue to do that because it fits within our, our ultimate goals. I think it's just, it, it does give us a, a, a decision-making framework that um, allows us to make some of the larger decisions. Um, you know, I don't know if it, how much it fits into like crop by crop decision, you know, what, like, do we plant potatoes or do we plant squash? I don't know if that really factors into it as much, but it's more, you know, the larger picture. And we are making those kinds of crop by crop decisions like any good farm should based on extensive record keeping and um, keeping track of the numbers and and taking time to look at them and kind of analyze them. And um, I think, the holistic con like actually sitting down and writing a holistic context with Kevin and crafting that same thing this past winter with his parents who live on the farm and they're, they're not owners of the business, but they're landowners with us has helped to keep sort of our quality of life and what's important to us really in the forefront of our minds. So it was really a no brainer this winter to go after that grant money for the high tunnels because we know um, we know part of our financial security is going to be providing more cash flow over the winter. We know part of our our desire to eat well and nutrient dense food is going to be having a place to grow food over the winter. We know part of our goals of improving the land and the water systems is going to be staying out of our garden over the winter because it floods a lot and we've you know, caused some problems there with harvesting and walking and walking in wet soil over the winter because we do so much overwintered production. So it just became really easy to kind of trust our decision making process because we have the process enables you to put those goals and the and articulate what's important to you and keep that all sort of right at the front of your mind as you're as you're going about your day to day life. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that I think that one of the really neat things that holistic management does is it it talks about the importance of management, which is something that I think when you throw that out there, a lot of people immediately go, "Ooh, that's really businessy and and not why I got into farming. But it, it puts that in this in this larger context of of really why you got into farming and, and what your values are and talks about management within that context. Yeah, that actually has probably been partly hadn't thought of that before you said that, but um, I think really embracing our roles as managers has coincided with take, uh, reading Alan Savory's book and really becoming students of holistic management because 
yeah, I don't shy away from that management role anymore. I kind of see it as, you know, we're sort of grand orchestrators of this crazy, dynamic, complex organism that we've created around us. And it's, it's, it's not just us. It's all these different factors. It's our, it's our shareholders, our neighbors and our mentors and our crew. And it's, we're sort of, um, you know, we have a key role to play in, in making it all run smoothly. And, and to the degree that we've embraced that, the farm has has been more successful and a much happier place to be. Yeah, it's allowed us to kind of get over the uh, the worker guilt, you know, <laughs> that we're like, oh, you know, the crew's out there and they're hula hoeing and we should be out there too. And we do try to work with them as much as we can. Um, but we also realize that we are in charge of this the, the whole rest of everything. And, you know, we have to do our production planning and we have to do our grazing planning and we have to do all of the, that aspect. And for me, it's allowed me to, the holistic management has allowed me to, Melanie is amazing with the production planning side of the garden and, you know, keeps a meticulous records and, you know, can do all of these, you know, spreadsheets and whatnot. And what, like she said, it didn't really work for me, um, you know, and particularly when we look at the, the, the pasture side of the, the operation. But for whatever reason, the whole the way the holistic management record keeping and, you know, planning the grazing planning works, it does work for my style. And so we're able to now, you know, albeit we're at the very beginning of the process, we're able to start planning ahead for the, you know, the complexity of the moves that we're making with several different species and, um, you know, moving things around in timely manners and managing for recovery periods. And, and all of that it has been something that I kind of just did by the seat of my pants, you know, for years while I was kind of learning and figuring things out. And now I have a groundwork to do, you know, the, the caliber of work that, you know, Melanie was, was giving us in, in the, the garden management, I can kind of match that with the, the pasture side of it. And, um, and that's been really helpful for, for when we manage things as a whole, as the farm, because we have a shared language that we can talk about it. Um, and it allows us to communicate better with how we make our decisions. Um, even mundane decisions. Tell me a little bit more about how the livestock side of your operation works and how you're fitting all of those different components together. Yeah, let's see. Um, so the poultry side, we do up to 1800 broilers a year. And we really, um, the way I schedule that is it's because pastured poultry is seasonal. We can't do it. We have too wet of a climate. We uh, chickens do fine in wet. They do okay in cold, but they do not thrive in wet cold. So we start our production in February. Um, we brood all of our chicks and I try to do about three of our, we do about 10 slaughters a year. So we're slaughtering about every month, but I try to schedule it. So we do three slaughters before the start of the CSA. We'll do another two after the, after the CSA ends in November. And so during the very busy CSA packing time, we're only slaughtering once a month. It's definitely hard. I can't, I mean, sometimes I feel like our garden suffers a little bit from, um, because we have other priorities. I mean, sometimes 
we have a chicken week and that means we're not planting, we're not weeding. But I mean, the benefits of having the chickens as something we can offer our community are so huge. Plus the what they provide for our farm in terms of fertility, all the compost that we collect from our brooders um, for both of us is just worth the effort. And I guess we just, you know, we try to schedule it when we look at the whole year. We make sure our lambing is happening in March um, when we're relatively, I mean, our, usually our apprentices have not arrived yet on the farm. We might have one or two um, people around, but we're we're not as, you know, the garden's just, we're just starting to prep ground then. You know, we maybe are starting to disc in a little bit of cover crop or something. So we do the bulk of our, of our lambing in March. We do, we have our cows um, come into... They usually calve in January, February, right before our grass flush, um, when, again, we're not as busy. And so we can kind of make that transition into milking twice a day in the winter time when we're a little more relaxed and rested. And we, we just try to schedule it when we recognize that when the CSA is happening from June through October, it adds this whole dimension of busyness and our schedule gets pretty locked in with the markets that we do and our CSA distributions. So we kind of take the animal side of things and schedule key events around that. What tool are you using to do that? Um, to be honest, right now we're using our, our grazing plan. Yeah. We have a, a full table in our house dedicated to our grazing plan and it has all these colored lines on it that mark important times of the year that we need to keep in mind. Um, and we just have sort of support documents, spreadsheets that sort of color in chunks of the year. Okay. This is the CSA chunk. This is, um, this is when we're going to be really busy with sheep sharing. This is when we're going to be trying to cut some hay and we just sort of make sure there's a little wiggle room between all those important activities. <laughs> and we we have Melanie has calendars and clipboards and you know we've got a, a variety of tools for keeping track of you know who's doing what and when and where and I mean the I would say that the level of complexity that we're managing here on the farm is pretty high. I mean it's I it's very high in fact. <laughs> um you know, we're managing our crew, you know, we cook, we do a rotated meal during the weekdays. And so keeping track of who's doing that and then keeping track of who's doing what household chores and what appointments that, you know, we have and my parents have and Clyde has. And it's, it's, you know, you should see Melanie's uh, schedule book. It is, it is well used. <laughs> I don't know. It all boils down to good communication little bit of structure you know we have a family dinner Sunday nights where we talk schedule we have crew meetings where we try to talk about the week ahead what the priorities are I mean obviously things are you can have a plan and then there's always this need for flexibility which has been hard for me as a planner but I think we do a pretty good job now of 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 kind of uh laying it out involving all the people who on the farm that are involved and making them, helping them just kind of understand what the shifting, ever shifting priorities are. And, you know, I think there probably are changes down the line um, for what we are doing. I mean, we're already talking about downsizing our sheep and 
we really love the cattle. So what can we do more to enhance the cattle side of our operation? And I think we're at a really comfortable place with broilers. Um, we currently we're the only producers in Humboldt County. There could be, there might be another one or two um, doing some chickens this year, but we're not meeting demand. I mean, we could sell a lot more chickens, but we don't want to produce anymore. That 1800, that's sort of our, our comfort zone. It works pretty well with our vegetable production. It provides a nice balance on the market table. Um, any more than that. And, and we wouldn't be able to do a good job with the vegetables. Um, so we've just kind of tried to find those sweet spots that work together and create um, a really interesting workplace. I mean, I, we love, and I think our crew loves that we're, all, we're never doing one thing for too long might have a big chicken day, but then the next day we'll be doing some harvest or some garden care, or some compost making. I mean, it just, the work is incredibly diverse and that keeps it interesting, keeps it fun, keeps it fresh. Awesome. With that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round. But before we do that, we need to get a quick word from one more sponsor and then we'll be right back. Today's lightning round and today's episode is brought to you by Store It Cold's CoolBot. The CoolBot has changed the way farmers think about cooling facilities for their vegetables by making it possible to cool a walk-in cooler with a window air conditioning unit with massive savings on the front end and an ongoing electricity and maintenance costs. And now they've taken another step forward and created a turnkey refrigeration solution, an energy efficient walk-in cooler designed for easy assembly by you in hours, not days. I know from experience how much time and energy can go into building a not so great homemade walk-in cooler or looking for a used one that's still in good condition. Save yourself the time and the money and make your produce stand out in the marketplace when it lasts on store shelves, in restaurant walk-ins, and in your customer's refrigerator drawers because you sold it to them cold. If you're purchasing a CoolBot, please use the code FTF at checkout to double your CoolBot warranty at no charge, or mention Farmer to Farmer and receive an exclusive discount when you order a walk-in cooler. Storeitcold.com. Melanie, what's your favorite tool on the farm? um i love those tools uh that really make you uh they really help you to kind of get into this rhythm with your breathing and your and your your thinking sort of meditative so i love the uh, broad fork i love the iho i mean i don't get to it's not they're not like tools we use all the time and we do a lot of broad forking in the greenhouse but in terms of just the physicality and the meditative component, those are my favorite tools to use on the farm. And how about you, Kevin? Um, that one's easy for me. Um, the pitchfork has always been my my favorite tool, um, and it's part of our Shake Fork logo. And um, I spend a good amount of my time forking ox manure, so um, that's that's a uh, that's my favorite tool tool on the farm. That's interesting. I thought you would have said the oxen. <laughs> That makes sense. I was hoping for some some wacky holistic management thing like <laughs> my yeah animal impact or something like that. We could have gone there, you know. <laughs> my 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 uh, my grazing plan. My grazing plan is my newest favorite tool <laughs> for sure. Um, but if I was to think just tools, pitchfork. So you mentioned that the pitchfork is part of. Shake Fork. So where did that name come from? Because it sounds really cool, but I have no idea what in the world a Shake Fork is. 
Um, a shake fork is essentially, um, it goes back to an old English root um, that, you know, you hear in like cedar shakes and it means split. Um, and so it's a, it's a, a, an old, you know, a sapling that's uh, split and turned into a kind of a crude pitchfork. And um, it's usually a two-tined or sometimes a three-tined um, pitchfork. Um, and uh, so that's just been the, the, the kind of logo. And, it, and it's always been my favorite farm tool. Well, it's connected to the Cunningham family name because the shake fork is on the cunning. It's a the Scottish clan, right? Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the shake fork is on our family crest. And it was actually Kevin's mother's idea to name the farm after that that piece of our family uh, legacy tradition. That's very cool. That's <laughs> great. Um, Melanie, what's your favorite crop to grow? I love to grow carrots um, they, and maybe onions <laughs> because they do really well <laughs> on our farm and they're both a little bit challenging and uh, a really well done bed of carrots is so such a pleasure. It's just so satisfying to harvest and, and distribute and a, a not very well done bed of carrots is just so demoralizing. So I love, I love the carrots for that challenge. And Kevin, what's Melanie's farming superpower? Melanie's farming superpower is definitely clipboard power. <laughs> it's the ability to take everything and anything and organize it onto a clipboard. Love it. And Melanie, what's Kevin's farming superpower? <laughs> Kevin's farming superpower is, uh, he has supervision. Uh, what I mean by that is he has the ability to dream big and to fiercely move towards those dreams with um, sometimes by the seat of his pants, but um, he puts the dream out there and then just getting it out there and uh, enables us to make it happen. And why did you get rid of the goats? <laughs> Goats don't respect fences. And we just, just, and, and you know, we got here, we have all this grass and, um, you know, goats don't like grass as much as they like berries and brambles. And so, um, and I just got tired of chasing goats when they would get out of fences. And so the sheep and the cattle are way easier to fence. Yeah. We move, we move everybody <laughs> with electric net fencing and, that doesn't keep goats in very well. And goats do not do well in wet weather without a structure and um, cattle and sheep do fine. So they just didn't work well with our management systems and the way that we're, we're taking care of our pastures. And Kevin, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? I would have to say, um, you know, to continue to not be afraid to try new things and, you know, maybe moderate the, 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 the larger dreamy vision of doing everything, but at the same time, keeping that ability to, to think big and innovate um, and not getting kind of pulled off of that from kind of the, 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 the realities of, you know, running the farm and the stresses of that. Um, but you know, cause I, I, yeah. And Melanie, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? 
I would definitely tell my beginning farmer self to be much more attentive to cash flow. Um, it just wasn't something we were really thinking about in the beginning, in the first year or two. And I think in some respects, we're still kind of paying for that, literally. Um, <laughs> so cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Figure out how you're going to bring in income to the farm year round. Um, keep your keep your workload balanced and keep the money um, flowing in so you can make the right decisions and and do the things you need to do on your farm. Spoken like a, like a clear clipboard superhero. (laughs) (laughs) Melanie and Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on the farmer to farmer podcast today. Yes. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for um, inviting us to be on your show. Awesome. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 121 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for the show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cunningham, that's C-U-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your email inbox by signing up for my newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. And also, if you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. We're also at Purple Pitchfork on Instagram and Twitter for what it's worth. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. This episode was the result of a recommendation that I got. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.